Hello, and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Of course, Pod Sequentialism is brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, as well as the Soplant Wacko Superstore and La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and um, the gallery that I own with my wife, Gallery 30 South in Pasadena. Um, we're very happy to have received Artnet coverage this past week on our religious paintings of the Expanded Galaxy show um, shortly in uh, the next month or so, we'll be having shows with um, Chuck D of Public Enemy and Prophets of Rage in his first fine art exhibition as well. So if you're interested in that, please go to uh, gallery30south.com. You can follow on Instagram at gallery30south. And of course, with this podcast, you can follow our, our goings-ons at our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, which would be at podsec or at podsequentialism. So we're going to pick up now with um, with Peter Lavenda, who we previously spoke to about his um, Gods Project, which is part of the Secret Machines um, series that uh, Tom DeLonge of Blink-182 has um, pieced together for his To the Stars organization, uh, which is calling for more open disclosure about the UFO phenomenon. And as we touched on in that last episode... Peter has written extensively about the rat lines um, that existed at the end of World War II. And the rat lines, of course, were escape routes for Nazi war criminals that were put together by friendly governments and the Vatican. And I think that uh, while there had been um, a, a little mention of the rat line, um, and of course there had been a lot of talk about uh, the Odessa system and the, the very popular book and film, The Odessa File, in uh, a few other films like Marathon Man that touch on the um, resurfacing of, of war criminals. And, of course, the Oscar-nominated uh, Hotel Terminus, which uh, talked about the capture of Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Paris. And um, But Peter's books, um, is the first of which goes back to um, talking several decades now with Unholy Alliance, uh, which carried a forward by uh, no less a person than Norman Mailer, um, talking about that a lot of what we sort of take for granted and what we know about the end of World War II is um, backed by very little evidence, if any. Um, most of it was put together by a British Secret Service um, man who was charged with the task of creating a cohesive story about the end of the war. He himself did not speak German and therefore could not interview uh, Germans, did not speak Russian, could not interview Russians. And much of what we know about the, the last days in the bunker and thereafter are not things we know, but things that we've just been told. And so as part of this 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 trilogy of books, which spans, um, I believe, three decades, if I'm not mistaken, um, in, in reporting time, a very interesting story and narrative starts to, to come to the forefront. And people who've been tuning into my program f- since the beginning, as we, we enter the We've, we're past the 100 episodes at this point. Um, you've heard me mention Peter Lavenda quite frequently. Um, you've heard me recommend his books. And you've heard me make the parallel that the Hydra organization, as um, pictured in the Marvel movies about Captain America, uh, is very much based on the real post-World War II um, Nazi ratline escapes. And um, you'll be hearing in this next hour about... Um, the dissemination of high-ranking Nazi intelligence officers, not just who came over in paperclip and became part of the atomic bomb program in the United States uh, and in my neighborhood of Pasadena, California, but um, also helped run the, the secret services in such unlikely places as Egypt and Israel. So uh, again, welcome back to the program, Peter Lavenda. Thanks very much for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. So um, we started to touch um, at the end of our last episode about um, your visit to uh, Colonia Dignidad in the late 70s and um, researching this idea that there was this um, Nazi, uh, I guess, strong outpost uh, in South America, in Chile, and what you would end up discovering as you started to move forward and write your first book on Holy Alliance in, in talking about this phenomenon of how little we know about the end of World War II is that South America is one strong post, but there were others. And you were able to uncover in subsequent books um, specific routes. Um, there was a diary that was located that uh, alludes to some very, very... Um, sort of um, 
astounding information and information that has since been backed up. And I've noticed that since your Ratline book was published and since the Hitler Legacy book was published, three or four other books that also posit much of the um, the basic tenets of those books have been published by other people in academia. And, and so I think that Number one, uh, I'm going to be the guy that says that they followed the trail that you you left for them starting decades earlier and um, have maybe benefited from it. But I think also that people do respect where information comes from. And so what led you on this this um, this path to start looking into the um, the the post-war Nazi underground and, and how it infiltrated into American culture and world events and even into terrorism today? Well, I was always fascinated by the relationship that seems to exist between church and state. I was always uh, very suspicious of the way we sort of arbitrarily in this country divided those two, or we think we've divided those two realms of human experience as if they don't bleed into each other, right? right. So we, we have people that we elect uh, supposedly on the basis of you know pragmatic political ideas, but actually, you, you'll get presidents who are religious fanatics. And does that, what does that mean for our country, what, you know, the direction it's going to go into? Mm-hmm. Um, and not just our country, any country. I mean, when you have religious leaders who are also political leaders, um, what's the implication for foreign policy, domestic policy, et cetera? So I was always very fascinated by that. And we have a tendency to think that that's kind of superstition that only you know very primitive countries would be involved with that. But Germany um, in the 1930s had a leader who had a messianic vision of his role in the world, not just in Germany, but for the whole thing, the whole planet. And you had people around him who were very mystically oriented. And I started to wonder, well, what's the relationship there? I mean, is it true what I read in Morning of the Magicians when it was published back in 1960? Um, that there was an occult movement within the Nazi party or within the Third Reich in some way? Mm. You know, or was that just, was that fiction? We had touched on this in the last um, episode, that the relationship between fact and fiction, sometimes it's a little blurry. Right. And people get a few pieces of information, and they'll spin, you know, a, a wildly fantastic story based on that data. And I thought, well, is there any truth to that? And my first foray into that subject matter. This was happening during Watergate. This is when I first started becoming aware right. of all of these things was, was Watergate. I sort of read three newspapers a day during Watergate. I'm not making that up. That's what I did. I clipped things. I was fascinated by Watergate because I kept seeing names that I knew from other contexts. For instance, E. Howard Hunt, um, probably foremost among them. Mm-hmm. Hunt and Liddy. I thought, Liddy is the guy that was spying on Timothy Leary. You yeah. Know? And E. Howard Hunt was the guy who was involved in the Bay of Pigs. I'm thinking, what does all this mean? And I'm trying to put it all together. And I went to the National Archives um, in Washington, D.C., and I thought to myself, maybe they have records on German occultism, Nazi occultism from World War II. And I went there, and um, uh, Robert Wolf is the, was the head archivist at the time, very well known. Everybody who's been down there has credited him in their acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. And he was very nice, and he said, well, you want to look at this, this, and this, right? And he guided me to the microfilm rolls I needed to see. And I'm astonished my mouth is hanging open because here are all the actual records of an SS organization called the Ananerba and all the the occult research that they were doing on behalf of the Reich. And a Tibet expedition is detailed in there, you know. And, ex- and expeditions to other parts of the world, they're digging up pots with swastikas on them, and they're, they're doing all this stuff. And they're, they're, they're publishing essays on, on Sanskrit literature and all kinds of other things. And I'm staring at this thinking, I'm reading all this other stuff about Nazi occultism. Not a single one references these documents. Right. You know, here's, here's the actual documents. If anybody had actually just bothered to look, they would find them. Yeah. And if not in Washington, they were also at the Berlin Documentation Center. So yeah, they were in two places. And then the Library of Congress had even more information. They had another cache of documents. Uh, and I thought, well, here it all is, right? So this it's true. They were involved in occultism. So I started copying pages like crazy, which cost me a fortune. And I have these huge 
you know, uh, uh, Xeroxes, uh, photocopies of all this microfilm material. And I'm starting to work on that. And then I'm reading a book by Ladislas Farago called Aftermath. And he's talking about an occult Nazi organization, some encampment or something in South America, in Chile. Wow. So was he making it up? He was accused of, you know, just making stuff up or of being gullible, uh, being credulous and just believing anything anybody ever told him which was very unfair to a guy of Farago's background. So I was going to say, yeah, I, I, you know, that from what I understand about him, he was a, a pretty staunch researcher. Well, he was, you know, and he, he had lived through the war as well. He wrote Patton, which eventually became the movie with George C. Scott. He yep. wrote Game of the Foxes about the intelligence agencies uh, fighting during World War II. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, and Aftermath was pretty solid. Yeah. Yes, he had personal interviews with people who could have been misleading him for their own ends. But it's still read like a detective story, and I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow up at least this one aspect of the story. Yeah. Is there such a place in South America called Colonia Dignidad? And I was working for a company at the time called Bendix. I worked for the Bendix International Organization in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and we dealt with international clients. That was my my job, and I had a, a two week vacation. So on my own dime, you know, I took the two weeks off, and I flew to to Chile to Santiago. And without really knowing, this is before the internet, so there's no GPS and there's no there's no data except what I had in Farago's book. And I imagine which the I Thomas decided, Guides left a little to be desired when it came to South America. <laughs> yeah, especially when it came to Colonia Dignidad. Yeah. Yeah. It was not the, places that not technically in the don't exist, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So I get to, you know, to Santiago and I have to find my way to a town called Parral in the south. Uh, and I'm going to the bus stations, right? And I'm looking for, you know, schedules. I mean, it's very rudimentary stuff. And I didn't know how to drive. I couldn't rent a car because I'm a New Yorker. Right. And we don't know. We don't know how to drive. We right. never learned to get it. Were, were you, know, you we born in New England, though? Maybe, but, yes. you, were you, you weren't born no, in New York, I, though, right? I, no, I was born in the Bronx. Oh, right on. But your family did move around when you were younger. We moved around a lot, yeah. yeah. So I lived in New England for a couple of years. I lived in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. That's another whole story. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but anyway, so you know, I, I went to high school in the Bronx. And, you know, the same high school as David Berkowitz, and uh, the same high school as Christine Jorgensen. Just little bits of information for yeah, for your people to to, to gnaw over. So now it's seventy nine. I'm twenty eight years old, and it's June of nineteen seventy nine. And I decide I'm going to do this myself. And I get to Santiago, and I get the bus schedules and. I get on a bus heading down to Parral and this tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And I get out of the town, I get out of the bus rather in the town in the middle of the night. And there, you know, there's the night watchman, you know, the place is deserted. There's Mm -hmm. roosters crowing in the distance. It's like a weird surrealistic kind of scene. And this guy comes out on a bicycle with a dog, you know, and I try to tell him I'm waiting, I'm going to catch the train at the train station. And he laughed, you know, like there hadn't been a train there in years. And eventually the story comes out, I'm going to the colony, and he introduces me to some friends of his who were police. And in those days, the police and the army, the country was under martial law. Yeah. So the police were basically part of the army. Right. But these were very nice guys, and you know, we sat and we chatted, and we, we got drunk on Aguardiente, and they told me not to go, and they gave me the background of, of the colony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they all had experiences with the colony, and they made it sound like it was really dangerous, but hell, I had spent my vacation money going down to Chile. I better get something for it. So I found a guy who would drive me when the sun came up. It was a Sunday morning, and uh, I got it into this rent, you know, hired car, and we went up the mountain, and you know, the rest is history. We, we you know, drove through into the parking area, and uh, I jumped out of the car. I took a few photographs. I figured this is as close as I'm going to get, but it's still closer than a lot of people. Right. And I got back in the car, and uh, that's when we were trapped, uh, you know, a limousine came out in front of us, a, a, a white Mercedes, all the doors open, gates closed electronically, people surrounded the car, and my driver figured we were all dead. I mean, he literally, you know, Starts he was spraying the rosary immediately, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty bad. And uh, they took my passport. Uh, they took uh, the film out of my camera, all of this other stuff. They interrogated me, but I stayed in the car. They were sort of not sure what to do with me. Um, I was in a car being driven by a local Chileo, uh, Chileno, and they didn't know what, they didn't know who I was. They thought I was an Israeli in mm-hmm. the first place. 
uh, they were talking to the driver and they were assuming I was part of some kind of, you know, commando unit or something. Which was some pretty Simon ridiculous. Wiesenthal kind of Nazi hunting yeah. organization. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, if anybody had seen me in those days, I, I was, I weighed maybe 130, 125, you know, soaking wet. And yeah. I looked like your total complete nerd. And I still do. Um, <laughs> glasses and the beard and the whole thing. There was no way I was an Israeli commando by any stretch of the imagination. But they thought it might be possible. So out of a lot of conversation and the fact that this guy was here, they couldn't arrest him. I guess they could take me out of the car, but then he would know what happened. It got very complicated. Um, and I found out later why they let me go, but they did eventually let me go. They gave me back the passport and they told me I was no longer welcome in the country. Yeah. These are a bunch of Germans on a pop in the middle of nowhere yeah. telling me I better leave the country. I yeah. wasn't welcome there. So we get back gratefully to the town, to Paral, and as we get out, the Carabineros, the police, are waiting for us. And then they check me out. They make sure they have no problem with me going up there. They were more curious about the colony than they were about me. Right. They wanted to know how many people were there, et cetera. They really wanted the background. I get back on a bus heading back to Santiago, and the buses stopped periodically at roadblocks, which hadn't happened on the way down. Mm -hmm. And the police would get on board. Uh, or the Carabineros military, I couldn't tell. And they asked for me by name to make sure I was still on the bus. So you're, you're in a bus full back, of uh, 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 however many people, look, not speaking yeah. English probably at all, and the bus stops right. and a guy with um, a military-type uniform and possibly a gun or at least a, uh, a hip weapon gets on and is like, Peter Lavenda? That's no good story usually starts with that. No, no good story. And of course, they're wearing no, they're wearing uniforms. They were quite obviously military, and they yeah. were uh, they were carrying very visible weapons. I mean, there was not there was no doubt in anybody's mind who they were. Yeah. And they made sure that you know, that's that I was on the bus. And when I got back to town, there was a note waiting for me in my hotel room, telling me I was on the next flight to Miami. I wasn't going to Miami. I was going to New York, but right. I was on the next flight. To Miami, right, right. Which I, I which I accepted gratefully. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's when I got off out of the airport. Uh, Pass through customs and immigration. And there's two gentlemen there from our security services. I was too dazed to really track the, the, the badges they flashed at me, the, uh, the identity cards. Mm -hmm. But they asked me by name. They wanted to make sure they saw my passport. They looked at each other. They nodded and they walked away. Mm -hmm. They made sure I got off the plane. Mm -hmm. That's our people. Right. Right. So our people and the Chilean government coordinating this to make sure I got off the plane. That was the scariest part probably of the whole the whole uh, experience was knowing that there was some you know, kind of collusion. Yeah. There was, a, there was some kind of collusion and, and there were more incidents when I got back to New York as well. So yeah. And then a month later in August uh, in, uh, in the newspapers, the Jack Anderson column starts reporting on Colonia Dignidad saying it's a torture and interrogation center with a lot more information than Farrago had. And now I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, Oh crap. Do the Nazis think I was the source of the story, right? Then my, then my life is probably in worse danger. So there was a brief period of a few months there when I didn't know which way that was going to blow. And uh, it turned out nothing happened to me after that, and I was okay. This is the weekend they didn't play golf. Tagline for deliverance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, right, so, yeah. so fast forward, and um, I, you, you, how, how long did it take you to start writing on Holy Alliance from that incident? Well, that happened in the 70s, and uh, Unholy Alliance was initially planned to be only one chapter in a much longer work that I was calling Sinister Forces. Right. And I got I got the title from a different number of different places, but basically it was Alexander Haig saying that Sinister Forces were responsible for the 18-and-a-half-minute gap in the Oval Office in tapes. The Nixon tapes, tape. yeah, yeah. The Nixon tapes. He used that term, Sinister Forces. And people started make, making fun of it in the press, you know, Hal Alexander Haig's demonic explanation, you know. Yeah. Um, and all of this, and that to me just summed everything up beautifully, Sinister Forces. And then I found out that we had used that phrase in a number of different ways, including in reference to the UFO phenomenon. Right. You know, when uh, was, I think it was MacArthur was saying, you know, we have to band together against the sinister forces of some other galaxy. Um, so all of that sort of put, it, it, it formed this kind of weird, 
sort of nuclear fission in my brain of, you know, the political stuff, the religious stuff, the arcane stuff, the Nazis, all of this, that we were living in this really strange world. Mm. And we were kind of trained to think in terms of little boxes, you know. So Watergate was like a little box. It was not connected to anything else, mm -hmm. but actually was connected to a lot of other stuff, right? Right. And the same with the Kennedy assassination and Vietnam and Iran-Contra later and everything else. There were all these mysterious little shadowy connections between events, between people. And that led me to this, this approach, which was not fiction. Um, it was obviously purely nonfiction, but the, the how shall I say, there was an element that partook of both fiction and nonfiction in, in this explanation because... Nonfiction was insufficient and still remains insufficient to describe what's actually going on in the world. Right. You know, the nonfiction approach is something that we've developed as, as a response to, to scientific materialism, you might say, or, or the scientific method. We, we go after a, a problem in a certain way, but we sometimes miss something important. And right. if we do fiction, who's going to believe if you're making stuff up? It may be emotionally satisfying to read fiction, but you don't then apply that to the real world. But to my way of thinking, there's a middle path between them, in a sense. There's a way of writing nonfiction, which keeps you aware that there's another alternative explanation to all of this. And I always use the Kennedy assassination as an example. You know, some people say there was a conspiracy. Some people say there definitely wasn't. Um, but neither one can fully explain the mountain of coincidences and synchronicities that surround that event right you know there's another explanation there so i use the particle and wave explanation you know is the kennedy assassination a particle or a wave right you know in terms of quantum physics right you can it depends on the observer so there has to be a third way of looking at it a, a wavicle i guess there's a way which you can look at an historical event and understand or acknowledge that there is a greater force somehow at operation in the world and when you kind of accept that without taking it as gospel, without trying to build, you know, an entire philosophy around it, just accept it, accept that these weird little things happen. You can be open to a lot more when you're reading history. You can suddenly start to see connections where other people haven't seen them. You can see a richness, a tapestry of our experience, which is really incredible. And then that applies in a roundabout way back to the Nazi thing, because we were told with you know, the Odessa file by Frederick Forsyth, as you mentioned, and Marathon Man and, and all of these other television shows and movies. Boys and from Brazil, Ira Levin, yeah. Boys from Brazil, yeah. You were, we were told that there's this, you know, this sort of mystical fraternity of Nazi SS officers around the world, and they're doing horrible things, and they're going to come back and destroy the world. Mm -hmm. And it makes for great fiction, and there are people who kind of believe it, and then they're poo-pooed by historians. Well, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as Odessa. Well... Not exactly. There actually is such a thing as Odessa. And there have been documents that reference Odessa. But there are other documents that represent other underground SS organizations and Nazi organizations. And you have to be open to that. If you, if you come up through academia, you are going to be closed off to certain sources of information mm -hmm. and to certain ideas. That affects the UFO phenomenon as well. You're brought up within a certain context. And that context does not allow you to think outside that box. Even though there's a mountain of evidence sitting outside the box that's relevant to your field of study, you're told by your colleagues, don't do that, you'll lose tenure. Career suicide, yeah, yeah. yeah well, career suicide. Yeah, there's an interesting um, sort of sidebar here which when you're talking about, you know, that, that difference between fiction and nonfiction and, you know, when Errol Morris directed Thin Blue Line, he used a reenactment footage to help tell the narrative story. And that had not been done in a documentary, you know, in what was ostensibly a documentary film uh, prior to that, that otherwise there were the speculative documentaries like, you know, Danikin's Chariots of the Gods, and um, some of the other Sun Pictures right. stuff that was coming out in the 1970s and that we used to watch in the summers in our elementary schools. They would screen them for free. I think M, M, uh, MGM might have been putting them out as like a kind of outreach and they got to write it off. 
is some kind of marketing expense. Yeah. But um, a lot of things that seemed to be very steeped in fact and were disguised in fictional drag were things like Odessa by way of the Captain America comics, you know, and that there was this, there's always been this overt presence of Hydra, which is, of course, a very thinly masked um, version of of Nazis escaping World War II. And then also in the Doctor Strange comics, where you had some actual kind of reference to real world magic via the stuff that Marv Wolfman was writing. Marv Wolfman was, of course, a regular at Magical Child, which was kind yeah. of the center of, of the um, occult universe in New York City in the late 60s and 1970s and um and so these things kind of make it through into the zeitgeist and i mean it's it's not like it can be said that this was you know some kind of indoctrination for children because i think if we're going to be honest with ourselves that the average ages of people that were reading those comics would have been their late teens early 20s and so the only the only people picking up on that stuff would be people who were already interested in the esotericism of the time which would be very much in step with the late 60s and early 70s and then that kind of dark direction that comics took which we kind of refer to as the um the bronze age coincides with things like um the height of uh television news reporting of vietnam um the manson murders um you know that that kind of the post um gimme shelter rolling stones altamont thing that the whole culture is starting to darken at a time and you mentioned and and not without um and not to to put too small a point on this that there's coincidence that there are things that happen. And I think that if you look at electron particles, that electrons act a certain way and then they act a different way when they know they're being watched. And I think if you Mm -hmm. think of events in the zeitgeist, that certainly um, there can be a, a confluence of coincidence that are drawn to events of certain importance or, um, or, or which have a, a great chance and possibly even a an influence upon the culture, and so it's easy to see that something as um, as consequential as the assassination of a head of state may be, from a zeitgeist point of view, a a collection point for many unrelated but strange and possibly related events. And so, as we start walking through history, and we see very important events that um, unfold and, and turn out to be important parts of history, that there is this wide, there's the, the, the short ring, the middle ring, the wide ring, and then the worldwide ring of consequence of that event. And what I think you've done so beautifully via both the, um, the, the trilogy started with Unholy Alliance and um, Sinister Forces is that you've grabbed all the incidents and then laid the groundwork and then put the map in like okay here's this area here's why you know these indian mounds in in middle america um around these mounds become a lot of really esoteric interesting things there's a lot of serial killers around these there's a lot of government experiment around these particular serial killers and these things start to kind of to to spiral off into more fascinating and and to some aspect more difficult for people to believe as a linear thing, but you're not presenting them as a linear thing. You're saying these are these are Venn diagrams that intersect in ways that we don't understand why they intersect, but here they are. Right, exactly. I mean, we we tend not to understand. For instance, we we we, we focus a great deal on individuals. We focus on events. We don't see connections between them necessarily, and we don't understand the ground. There's a ground to events, you know. Um, there's a um, a background. There's a there's there's the physical place where things take place, which is also important, which we normally ignore because they're kind of irrelevant the way we understand things. But the physical place is also important. And the United States is you know part of the North American continent, and North America is um, as, as I call it in Sinister Forces, it's a haunted house. Yeah, there were civilizations here older than Egypt. There were burial mounds bigger than the Great Pyramid at Giza. There were all sorts of stuff happened here, and we sort of bulldozed over it. You know, we're we're unaware of the fact that we're living in what the remains of a very ancient culture, and is that having any effect? You know, all these tourists will go and see the Great Pyramid, and they're always very moved by it, affected by it. They're they're astonished by it. It's it's an amazing thing, and they go back home. 
without realizing that there were larger pyramids here, that there were civilizations that were doing strange things here, um, because it's not part of our of our of our consciousness at all. Right. But is it part of, is it part of our unconsciousness? Is there is there something at a subconscious level which is sort of percolating beneath it, which is, you know, this this sort of story I started with in Sinister Forces with Ashland, Kentucky, and Charlie Manson growing up with the Indian burial mounds and all of that, and then all these other serial killers, as you mentioned, coming from areas that had all of these burial grounds and putting prisons on top of the burial grounds. Mm-hmm. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is at the side of a burial mound. So, you know, and then they started making movies about that. You know, there was identity with John Cusack. You know, there's a motel, you know, built at the site of a burial mound or uh, the Poltergeist, Poltergeist you know, film, film. Yeah, on top of the burial yeah, ground. All, so there's, we're kind of thinking there's a connection, but in none of these these fictional uh, depictions, do we actually come out and say what that relationship is? We just kind of instinctively know there's something weird and unsettling about that relationship that we could be living on top of an ancient site that was used for religion or for magic or for burial, you know, and we're living on top of it, uh, ignorant of it. Whereas if we go to Egypt, we're extremely conscious of the context, right? you know, because it's been preserved that way. So what's the difference? And, when it comes to the Nazis, since we, <laughs> we keep trying to get back to the Nazis, um, if we talk about the Nazis, there's there's that same idea that it's kind of fictional, that maybe some Nazis escaped, sure, but they're just these lonely old guys living, you know, in studio apartments and, you know, dying of old age. Yeah. Well, that wasn't true at, at all, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. Klaus Barbie went to Bolivia and eventually ran their secret service for the government, you know. Um, others at Colonia Dignidad, that was a major um, a meeting place for Nazis on the run. Josef Mengele was there. Um, Otto Skorzeny was there. Um, yeah, I mean, I have favorite records commando, of Otto Skorzeny. Otto Skorzeny. Hans-Ulrich Rudel, uh, Hitler's favorite uh, aviation ace. Oh, right, right, uh, right. Went, went, went through there all the time. Right. I mean, uh, these people came and went there. This was where they hung out, you know. This was part of their operation. And in the Hitler legacy, I reprint an entire address book uh, by who I think was Hans Ulrich Rudel, uh, possibly Mengele, but I think it was Rudel's uh, address book. It was included in a declassified file that the CIA let out that was supposedly the Mengele file. But here was this entire address book, and I went nuts with it because I could identify virtually every name, address, and phone number in the book. Mm -hmm. And so many members of the Nazi underground are listed in this book, which is not that old. It's maybe 20, well, about 30 years old, I guess, from the 1980s. And there it is. You know, it's laid out. Um, people in the United States, people in South America, people in Asia, people in, in North Africa, Europe, all, all over the place. So there was a reality, and the reality is not the way Frederick Forsyth depicted it page by page. But he didn't get a lot wrong. In, in the Odessa file. There was a lot of Nazis. There were a lot of Nazis in Egypt developing rockets to send into Israel. We know that. Mossad did what they could to stop it. They sent agents and they blew up, they killed some of the scientists. Mm. They did what they could to disrupt that operation. That was taking place. That was part of the underground. That was part of the Nazi underground. The rest of it was in Libya, uh, was in other parts of Africa, in South Africa. We had, of course, a huge segment in South America. And as I later found out through my own travels, also in Asia, and there was a Nazi party apparatus in Indonesia mm-hmm. um, that existed in, in the expat community virtually in every major city in Indonesia by a man who became Hitler's closest friend and one of the last people to leave the bunker. So, you know, you have a fact of Odessa. There was a Hydra. And at the end of the war, our own Congress in the United States published uh, in the congressional record, their their belief, based on the evidence that they had captured, that the Nazis had expatriated roughly 400 different corporations around the world, their engineers, their their assets in terms of the money and gold and whatever, uh, their technical information, engineering diagrams. They were told to do this at the end of the war, just before um, the war really fell apart, at the time of the D-Day invasions. The SS told the, the Nazi corporation executives, get your stuff out of Europe. Get it out of Germany for sure, but get it out of the reach of the Allies. 
Get it to Portugal and Spain. Get it to the United States, South America, Asia, wherever. But get it out of the, the reach of the Allies. So you suddenly had a financial network, which was very broad, which we're still trying to uncover. We've uncovered so much of the gold in, in actual government documents and banking documents that made its way around the world. The access to that gold was German corporation executives and people who had fought for Germany, particularly for the SS during the war. So they were financed. You know, they had technology. They had connections to local governments and corporations and industry. So you did have and still have a kind of hydra in existence today. You know, and it's it's astonishing that we just don't want to look there because it's too weird. You know, it's too unbelievable because we were taught something else at the end of the war. The Germans lost the war. That's it. End of story. But it wasn't to them. They're true believers. You know, the Nazi party did not surrender. The Nazis were true believers, especially the SS. They were not going to give up their belief in the master race, their belief in all the other weird ideas that they had. Plus, why would they? They had the money. They had the connections. They had excellent connections in the governments of these countries that protected them. Not just Juan Perón, you know, in Argentina. Who, of course, very famously declared war against Germany last <laughs> And yes, only right. as a means to be able to probably facilitate the um, the flow of, of war criminals into South America. But we're not going to blow the yep. lead. <laughs> we're going to take our, our break. <laughs> and um, in about 60 seconds, we'll be right back with Peter Lavender. We're going to go down the uh, the case file here of a book that he referenced that had a lot of addresses of Nazi war criminals, how he that came into his possession, and um, what the possible actual... Um, a date of death for Adolf Hitler might have been. So uh, stay tuned because there's some mind-blowing stuff coming in about 30 seconds and on this episode of Pod Sequentialism. And we're back. So, Peter, before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, the fact that the, the Nazis, before the end of the war, were able to set up and move corporations into other nations, um, divide stock. Um, of course, we know that there was a lot of friendly American businesses that were working um, on both ends of the war effort, some of whom were penalized in Congress. Uh, um, names that were associated with these companies include Prescott Bush, who was um, forced to pay a fine uh, to avoid imprisonment for his involvement in producing uh, services and products for the uh, Nazis during their war effort. Uh, also, um, Donald Trump's father was uh, involved in war profiteering and uh, quite a few other people. I, I'm, I'm not going to leave the Kennedys out of this, um, that there was a certain amount of, of investment in corporations that had holdings in Germany. Very famously, of course, Ford Motor Company and uh, Ford being Henry Ford being given the highest honor that a non-German can receive by the, um, the Nazi party. And um, what a lot of people may not understand and may not know is, of course, that when the, the country of Germany surrendered, the ruling party, the Nazi party, uh, did not sign off on the, um, on the capitulation. They never surrendered. Um, it was a de facto uh, German officer who, who signed the, um, the end of the war, basically. And so there's this idea that, um, that stems from that, that, of course, that there was no offer of surrender. And like you say, they're, they're, this is a group of true believers. And despite the, quote unquote, denazification process that was used by the United States in importing important high-level scientists, we realize, of course, that if we were benefiting from all of these um, Nazi scientists, how is it that the Russians made it into space before us? Um, that instead it seemed to be a, a long detente being engineered to prolong a cold war between the Soviets and the United States, um, which benefited, of course, third parties or people who are invested in maintaining a cold war. So when when this this whole... I guess the whole bulk of what becomes the Hitler legacy and in the book in which you published that um, that address book, which contained uh, the names of high-ranking Nazi officials and, and addresses. Now, the book's origins go back to the 1970s, but it came into your possession in the 80s? Yeah, we're, we're talking about two different address books. 
um, the one address book in the Hitler legacy, mm -hmm. that was a declassified CIA document. Mm -hmm. There's another address book which appears in Ratline. Right. And that's the one that existed in, well, it was first discovered in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And it was an Indonesian man who got a hold of it in the 1980s. And then uh, not too long ago, a Singaporean man got a hold of it. And that's the person who contacted me after I had already published uh, Ratline. And he said, listen, the book that you're talking about, I have the documents about this particular person believed to be Hitler who had escaped to Indonesia, according to the story. I have all those documents. So I went to Singapore uh, to meet with him and eventually at one point wound up staying in Singapore for months uh, doing research on the documentation that he had, that he allowed me to see at sometimes great difficulty. But at any rate, I satisfied myself that the documentation was, was genuine. The passports were there as well. And there were some very cryptic notations, which eventually were um, uh, translated, de decry decrypted by, um, by a reader, mm -hmm. by somebody who's actually reading uh, the books and said, oh, I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. So one thing led to another. And that particular book, yes, uh, was in the possession of a man who lived in uh, Indonesia on a remote island. If you've ever been to Indonesia and you've been to Bali, which is you know kind of remote from the, the capital, from Jakarta, mm -hmm. uh, it's a separate island. This island is a couple of islands further east. So it's it's close to Komodo, where the Komodo dragons come from uh, it's 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 really in a very remote area today but back in the 1950s it was really remote and this was a so, uh, evidently a german and his german-born wife uh, a couple that moved out there in the uh, early 1950s set up a kind of medical practice on this island and this gentleman never left the island in his life except for the uh, the week that he died so there was a rumor that this guy was Adolf Hitler, mm -hmm. that he had escaped with Eva Braun to this island in Indonesia. And it was a very persistent rumor. It, um, it started because someone who had visited the doctor in the 1960s, uh, an Indonesian doctor, a military doctor, had visited the guy and had been very deeply impressed by what he had seen. It was a very strange couple with a very strange situation, and he couldn't understand what these people were doing in the middle of nowhere. And the guy didn't really seem to be a doctor, per se. Um, well, like, like a regular administrator. He was more of an administrator, yeah. So he goes back, and he thinks nothing more of it, until Klaus Barbie is arrested. Uh, you, we mentioned Barbie briefly before, and this is a key element of this, because when Barbie was arrested, it blew open the story of an underground Nazi network. It blew open the story of Odessa. Mm -hmm. Plus, it also kind of started to tease the information that Barbie had been protected by our own CIA, right? which later turned out to be true. Right. So Barbie had worked for military intelligence in Austria, uh, after he had been identified and captured, and he had been turned basically by American intelligence to work against the Soviets, and then eventually given papers and allowed to escape false documentation, uh, false identity papers, allowed to escape to Argentina first, but then he wound up in Bolivia, and the rest is history. Eventually, he was picked up there, extradited. And when all this happened, this Indonesian doctor is reading the newspapers like everyone else, and he's seeing all these stories. And then he starts seeing photographs of Adolf Hitler, and he realizes the guy he sees in the photograph is the spitting image of the guy that he saw on this island in the 1960s. Dr. Puck? Dr. Puck, yeah. Uh, Georg Anton Puck. So he goes and says to himself, well, this is really weird. And he goes and then starts digging around. He finds out that uh, Puck, had a, his German wife, left him, disappeared from the scene. Polk then later married a local Indonesian woman, converted to Islam to do that, married this woman, and then in, in 1970 uh, was forced somehow or in, in, seduced to move up to um, Surabaya just for a couple of days because some story about a sick patient or something, which makes no sense because 
like I say, he didn't the guy really, really was a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Right. So now he's in Surabaya and mysteriously dies and is buried in Surabaya. He's buried in a grave that has no dates on it. You know, in an Islamic grave, like in any grave, any tombstone, you're going to have when the person was born and when the person died. Very simple, basic material, basic stuff. Mm -hmm. This tombstone was blank. It had his name and nothing else. That alone raises alarm bells. Um, so a local guy gets a hold of all this information in a, about 10 years ago. He gets a hold of some of the address book material. He gets a hold of some photographs. He gets a hold of a lot of information and publishes a small pamphlet on this guy saying Hitler died in Indonesia. That's the title. Mm -hmm. Hitler Mati di Indonesia. So Hitler died in Indonesia. That's a very famous pamphlet. It was like a bestseller in Indonesia for a long time. And when I'm in Indonesia at that, that year that this comes out, I'm fascinated by the story. I don't believe it, but I'm fascinated by the documentation because there's real evidence in there. There's real data. There's, there's names, dates, and places. There's copies of pages of this thing. And I'm thinking, well, this is real. You know, whatever this guy has is real. It may not be Hitler, but it sure as hell means that there was a Nazi living in Indonesia at the time. I need to find out more of this. And I started to follow up the story. I wrote Ratline uh, based on information I had discovered about Nazis fleeing to Indonesia. And then I'm contacted by the guy in Singapore. He says, well, I've got all that documentation. Um, so I was able to look at it. I was able to see the passports. I was able to look at the address book. And it blew my mind. Yeah. You know, the, the amount of data that's there, the amount of evidence and proof that somebody uh, born about the same year as Hitler and Austrian as Hitler was with a photograph that looks very much like Hitler looked when he was in the trenches in World War One, kind of thin with a handlebar mustache and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. The guy is kind of the spitting image. And then I found out his height was this. As the first. I mean, there were a lot of the you know, the biometric, you know, information uh, work, a lot of the other information worked. And I thought to myself, well, if this isn't Hitler, then this is somebody that Hitler exchanged identities with. Right. Because in the, at the end of the war in Salzburg, because they all came out of Salzburg, Austria, this whole um, Odessa thing was really based first in Salzburg and then in the north, North Italy in Bolzano. So that was the route. And all these guys came out of Salzburg and Georg Polk, this German doctor, uh, was actually Austrian and a member uh, of the Nazi party and very prominent, as I found out, in, in Salzburg and in, in Austria in general. His wife was more famous. Uh, the real Polk's wife was Hella Polk, who was uh, a very famous anthropologist. So these are famous people who suddenly disappeared at the end of World War II, totally disappeared and supposedly wind up in Indonesia. And she was very at the, at the forefront of eugenics. Very much so. Uh, she wanted to do eugenic uh, testing and do uh, racial testing on Jews who were in the concentration camps in the Netherlands, which would have meant eventually Anne Frank and people like that. Right. She, was, she, wanted, she wanted to go up there and do that kind of testing. She had petitioned for this. Uh, so she had absolutely no qualms about any of this. She wanted to test the Jews to see if there were differences between Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazic Jews. But as so a, this as is a, the kind of background. As a kind of set yeah. of bullet points for this, the things that kind of line up that, that make you think, okay, well, this this is a guy who obviously bears a, a striking resemblance to Adolf Hitler, and um, there are names in this pamphlet that connect back to things that nobody knew when this pamphlet was right. written, that um, exactly. things that were exposed later, like the names of, of prominent uh, officials in the Catholic Church and addresses yep. of places that were later revealed to be sort of uh, drop boxes for identity papers and pickups for shuffling people out of the country, um, it ends up checking out. So you've got two sources of verification that connect back yep. to this pamphlet. Now, Very what, important. Yep. what becomes really important to remember is that anybody who was escaping Germany through a rat line would not use the identity of number one themselves if they needed a rat right. line. If they did if they could travel themselves they wouldn't need a rat line. They could just leave. And number two, you would not choose the name of anybody who was I mean, we realized that there were some people that used police officers' names and they were getting 
they they didn't know that the allies were were pulling police officers paperwork and so when they pulled the police officers paperwork they were getting um, pulled in for questioning and possibly getting busted as well so you'd really want to pick some was one of them. Yeah. yeah yeah and so um, you'd, you'd want to make sure that you were picking somebody who wasn't going to get stopped and so in a way this Dr. Pook becomes a perfect person for Adolf Hitler to travel as, and yet yep. Polk used his own name to travel. So he can't Except, be Polk. Yeah. <laughs> he, right. He, he, exactly. This is, this is the point of, of the whole exercise was that his address book had the names of everybody who was, in, who was important in running the rat line. He had the name of Krunoslav Draganovich, yep. which was the, the, the Catholic Monsignor who created the rat line single-handedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did that out of Salzburg with the counterintelligence corps of the army. Uh, but even before that, he was getting the the Croatian, Ustashi, all those pro-Nazi puppet government people mm-hmm. out of Europe and into Argentina. So he had his name and address there, plus he had other information about Draganovich and about the rat lines in that very address book, which really illuminated more of how they were able to get out and who was cooperating. So the address book was real. It had real information that in the 1980s, until the 1980s, no one knew. Uh, no one knew the name of Dragonovich except the intelligence people, right? Right. So people in general did not know these names. They didn't know until Farago's book came out, until Barbie was arrested. This all happened at the same time. Uh, no one knew these names. And here it was handwritten with the addresses and contact information. So I knew this guy was using the rat lines. And I knew that he had a wife who fit the general description of Hella Polk, but also fit the general description of Eva Braun. And people so, don't understand because we, we know Eva Braun's name so well now that at, in World War II, nobody except the very close inner circle, you know, people who were spending time at parties up at the um, the Eagle's Nest, um, yeah. were, nobody knew about her. She was kept very much a secret because Hitler was a father figure. And so they didn't want him to have... Um, a close associations with a girlfriend or a mistress or anybody that that it was important that he be this 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 one individual who who ran the country. So and, unless they were really really close to that inner circle, people didn't know about about Ava. So you no. know the idea of a woman dressed like a nurse sneaking a guy in a wheelchair out through the streets of Berlin um, would have been pretty common and would not have aroused any suspicion, which is one of the theories of how they might have, have gotten out. And of course, we've got records of certain people returning to Berlin in the days before the fall of the bunker. Um, is the whole weird um, uh, digging up and burying ritual of the supposed bodies, um, yep. you know, by, by Russian intelligence as they travel back into the Eastern Bloc. But um, one thing that's very important about what we know about Puck is that um, his wife leaves around the same time that Ava Braun's parents die? Her father, yes. Her father was very sick that year, Ava Braun's father. And that same year that he that he gets sick and then dies, that same year, we have this German woman or this European woman from Indonesia ups and leaves Indonesia and goes back to uh, to Europe and drops out of sight. The funny thing is, long after these books were published, I started to get communication. I won't identify the person much more than just say uh, someone who knew the family, mm-hmm. someone who uh, was who knew the Polk family very well, was was aware when so, so-called Hella returned to Germany. They said, oh, Hella is back, which is the name of this woman, the anthropologist, right. came back from Indonesia. And who oddly had is, been married to another man named Puck before she married Georg. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's another whole story. Yeah. Um, she comes back and disappears. She literally comes back and disappears. Everybody knows she's returned somehow. But nobody's seen but her. No one see, but no one sees her. She doesn't show up anywhere. So what's going on? I mean, by this time in the 1960s, it's pretty well known. Nobody's looking for the pokes at all. Right. Hella is not being sought. She's not being sought as a war criminal or anything. I mean, there was never any arrest warrants out for them. Right. You know, there were, they were looking for them. The, the Allied uh, authorities started looking for them uh, at the end of the war out of Salzburg. I think by 1946... Uh, if I remember correctly, another reader, oddly enough, sent me clippings 
where you know they had put an ad in the newspapers, the CIC, the American Counterintelligence Corps, without actually saying who they were, looking for Georg and Hella Pope. You know, urgently we need to find these people. Somebody they didn't talked. say why. <laughs> Somebody talked. You know, and they did leave, but they only got as far as Bolzano in North Italy, which was the the, the clearinghouse for for war refugees, the Nazis and the Jews. And that's that's Alpine that Italy, time. so that's that's um, yeah. the other side of the Alps, of which Salzburg would be on one side. And of course, Salzburg, of course, was a salt mine um, town. Uh, lots yeah. of uh, stolen artwork and gold and everything else All, was kept yeah. in there. So the Pokes make their way to Bolzano. And according to the, to the, the diary that I was able to read, it's not a diary, it's, it's sort of just a couple of pages of reminiscences in the address book, mm-hmm. uh, which was written, by the way, in something called Gablesburg shorthand. It's a long story, but that got translated into German and then from German to English. Mm-hmm. And you know, they all escaped to Bolzano. The story kind of ends there. Doesn't pick up again until the Pokes, whoever they are, get on a boat for Indonesia, and that's years later. For some reason, they're in Bolzano. They don't leave. They don't have a passport that I can determine. They're just sitting in Bolzano, but they have all the information they need to get out of town. They know all the contact people. They have access to all of that. They can get out. You know, who told them to go to Kronoslav Draganovich? It had to be other members of the SS. Right. There was a, uh, there was a support system, a network, that could have gotten them out to Argentina. And yet, for some reason, they either didn't take it or they went to Argentina and then left and came back, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But right. they wound up back in Bolsano. <laughs> There's also the indication that, they, that uh, Georg went to Switzerland just a few weeks before he left for Indonesia. And that might have been to pick up the cash. Yeah, do a little right? banking in Switzerland. Yeah. So that, that's a possibility, but I don't have any more documentation on that. Wow. What we do have is that Polk does manage to get to Indonesia with his wife. They arrive in Jakarta. They immediately make for this, this island in the middle of nowhere, and Polk refuses to leave that island under any circumstances for the rest of his life, except for two occasions. One was to Bali. And who doesn't want to go to Bali, right? <laughs> During the but year he, of living dangerously. Exactly. He went to Bali in 65. Yeah. Right. And he was happy. He came back sort of pumped after he came back from Bali in 65. Bali in 65 was a slaughterhouse. Yeah. They were killing tens of thousands of people as being suspected of communists, of being belonged to the PKI, the, the Communist Party of Indonesia. This was the time when Sukarno was under house arrest and Suharto was taking over. The generals were taking over and they were slaughtering people. Estimates go up as high as millions of people in Indonesia were killed. Wow. During the year of living dangerously. And that's the time, that's the one time Pope decides he wants to take a trip, and he goes to uh, one of the most dangerous places at that point, which is Bali in 65, and comes back really pumped about it. Nobody knows why. And the second time he leaves, he dies. He goes five years later to Surabaya, which is in the north of uh, the island of Java, the, the main island, and uh, he's there to meet somebody. It's kind of bizarre. It's mysterious from the records that I've seen. And he dies almost immediately and is buried in Surabaya. I've gone to the grave and I visited the grave. And everybody you know, who works at the cemetery in Surabaya is under the impression that that grave is Hitler's grave. That's what they, that's what they tell me, right? And we don't they introduce to, the grave to me, Hitler. Yeah. We, we don't want to give away the rest of the goods because I want people to read the books. And, okay. um, and it is definitely worth reading, um, especially if you're fascinated with that era of history. But he also, uh, Peter also draws a great line forward into what's behind a lot of the big terrorist groups that are around today, how they have connections back to Nazi cash and, and post-war initiatives. And so um, I, I encourage everybody to go and look for that trilogy of um, Unholy Alliance, Ratline, and The Hitler Legacy. And of course, look for all of Peter Lavender's other books on Amazon. And uh, again, I want to thank you so much for, for this program, and I'm so happy to finally get in touch, and, and hopefully this won't be the last. My pleasure. Fair enough. Excellent. And uh, any social media you want to shout out? Uh, I'm on all the usual places, on, on Facebook, of course, on um Instagram and on Twitter, but also have a website, Peter Lavenda, just my name, PeterLavenda.com, where you can find me updating periodically on what's going on in in life and on the uh, 
on the Tom DeLonge Project as well, To the Stars. So you can find me in a lot of different places. Excellent. Thanks again, Peter. And until next time, this has been Pod Sequentialism. I've been your host, Matt Kennedy. Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism, and I want to talk to you about my new art gallery endeavor called Gallery 30 South, which is gallery30south.com. It's also at gallery30south on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the socials. And what I've done with Gallery 30 South is kind of take that aesthetic of figurative and narrative work that we were running at uh, prior engagements and uh, really turning it on its head. So we've done groundbreaking shows with people like Francis Bean Cobain, Lindsay Way. We've got an upcoming show with Chuck D of Public Enemy. And of course, we have the uh, got international attention, I should say, for our international Star Wars mashup show of 17th century paintings that had Star Wars iconography painted on top of it. So if that sounds like your bag, I encourage you to check it out. Go to the website, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, support the arts.